3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Oh my God, it feels so good to be back in the saddle. So happy to have you back. Yay. You know what? We should do more singing. I'm sure our listeners love that. Yep. You know, we should do one of those songs where you just start saying a word and then you sing the next thing. It's like even more annoying improv. Yeah, I love it. Um, this is, you know, that's a little window into what we're doing when we're off air. Uh, just, you know, all singing, all dancing crew here. Uh, unfortunately, only an audio medium, so you don't get to the full experience. Um, but welcome. It is the 6th of April. Somehow it is April. Um, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, but then it's going to be May. <laughs> It is going to be May. I think we need to remember to do that. This is a prompt to us in the future to remember to say it's going to be May the week before our first show in May. Absolutely. Um, Well, we have a lot on for today. Maybe I'll take us through the first two things we've got up. So um, first of all, we're going to hear back, um, uh, hear some of a previous episode of The Sporting Record on 3CR, where M and John spoke with Peter Cullen from RecLink about his book, The Power of a Football, which gathered over 30 personal stories from all walks of life in the 30 years of RecLink footy. And then after that, we are going to be joined by Felix McIntyre, who's a non-binary transmask doctor living on unceded Wurundjeri country. And they join us to speak about their recent article for Overland, which argues that gender-affirming surgery should be covered by Medicare. And we're going to discuss the importance of accessible public health care for gender affirmation and the importance of centering trans bodily autonomy. And then... How exciting. We are joined by Aurelia St. Clair, NAM's favourite comedian, writer, podcaster and content creator, to chat about their Melbourne Comedy Festival show, Non-Dairy Presenting, which is on now at Trades Hall until the 23rd of April. Her hour of razor-sharp observational humour, homemade songs, inner north ramblings and feel-good comedy for lactose-intolerant people, as well as those who pretend to be, is not one to miss. And then we'll be joined by Jess Abrahams, Uh, who is a former Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service ranger who has worked for more than two decades to protect nature and works currently as National Nature Campaigner for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Today, Jess updates us on the growing number of threatened species, why the additions in recent months are so concerning, and what can be done to protect wildlife before it's too late. Amazing. I'm like, Aurelia, Aurelia, do my suburb. Say what people from my suburb are like. Um, I'm so excited for this interview. I know. It's going to be lovely. You're going to have to see the show and see if your suburb is in the Venn diagram. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, that's what we've got coming up for you today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Hi, my name is Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best 
uh, black and deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Join me then from 11, 12 Fridays, Community Radio, Thresia, 8.55 on the AM dial.3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 6th of April. Israeli police attacked and arrested Palestinian worshippers in a violent dawn raid on the Al-Aqsa mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem yesterday. Witnesses say Israeli police prevented Palestinians from praying using excessive force, including beatings with batons and rifles and stun grenades and tear gas, causing suffocation injuries to Palestinian worshippers. At least 14 Palestinians were injured and hundreds were arrested and remain in Israeli custody, according to Palestinian officials. The Palestinian Red Crescent have reported that Israeli forces prevented its medics from reaching Al-Aqsa. The attacks come during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan and were on the eve of the Jewish Passover holiday. In other news, an alarming report shows a deepening rental and housing crisis in Australia, with data demonstrating the failures of the rental market and increased risk of homelessness. The State of Nations Housing Report, released this week, conservatively estimates that more than 330,000 households are in rental stress and more than 44,000 are experiencing homelessness. Housing and homelessness advocates are calling for the Senate to come together to push through a new package of laws to tackle the housing crisis. Also in headlines, 12 activists from Blockade Australia have faced prosecution in Sydney this week in what is being referred to as the climate trials. Blockade Australia activists successfully disrupted the port of Newcastle, the largest coal port in the world, in 2021 and Port Botany in 2022. As a result, activists face charges under New South Wales controversial anti-protest laws. The laws threaten activists with two years in jail for the Ordinary Protests Act of marching on a public road and all arrested protesters were subjected to extreme bail conditions including restricted on movements of restrictions on freedom of movement, expression and assembly and were required to submit daily reports to the police. But all 12 activists facing court this week had those charges withdrawn in an apparent admission by police prosecutors that this charge is unlikely to win in court. And finally, in news headlines, the Australian Conservation Foundation has advised that dozens more Australian species were added to the threatened species list in the past month, including the pink cockatoo and a number of fish, skinks, turtles and other birds. Advocates say the rapid increase in threatened species highlights Australia's terrible track record of protecting unique species, 
and shows the need for urgent reform of the national environmental law and increased funding for threatened species recovery. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 6th of April. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Opening its stores in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 710 in the morning and we are now going to hear a little segment from the 21st of March episode of The Sporting Record on 3CR, where Emma John spoke with Peter Cullen from RecLink about his book, The Power of a Football, which gathered over 30 personal stories from all walks of life in the 30 years of RecLink footy. And you can listen to that full episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash The Sporting Record and catch The Sporting Record every Thursday from 4 p.m. But let's listen to that segment now. All right, here we are at 3CR Studios. My name's John A. Tate, and uh, this is a special edition of The Sporting Record, here with uh, M. Collard. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) See, we're normally afternoon. We are normally afternoon. And our special guest is Peter Cullen from uh, RecLink. G'day, Peter. Oh, good, John. And M, it's great to be with you guys, talking footy and the very best of football, uh, I believe. I think you're a bit bold wearing your cat's hoodie in, though. Uh, yeah, it, it is a little bit bold. I used to like to think that I wore them when they lost and went into the rooms when they lost, but people think that's a bit bizarre. You know, it's my way of uh, supporting. So how do you feel that loss to Collingwood on the weekend? Was yeah, it, right? was, yeah. it was interesting. I'm sort of getting some comfort out of winning the first three quarters, but Collingwood were very impressive the way they came back uh, from behind time and time again, I think. Uh, you know, you'd have to say it might, might have broke Geelong's spirit a bit that they came back, you know, in the closing five minutes of those quarters um, multiple times when it looked like Geelong was just starting to get a bit of a hold on the game, but they finished very well. And Geelong um, um, seemed to be really challenged in that last quarter. They just seemed to stop, didn't they? Yeah, they seemed to really lose the spark. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the uh, RecLink book, which is called The Power of A Football. What's the, point? What's the uh, meaning behind the title, The Power of A Football? Well, uh, to be honest with you, it's just such a, a powerful game. And um, from the earliest days of um, RecLink footy in 1989, we used it for that very reason within our community. It's amazing cultural power. Uh, it's been a, a tool... Um, that behind the, um, I guess, the glamour and the, the public um, 
enormous public interest in Australian rules. There's what we call third-tier football that we've been doing since um, 1989, and we've seen that the huge social impact, and um, we found that the game on the streets of St Kilda in 89 reminded people of people's better life memories. They were fantastic conversation starters to get to know people Mm -hmm. who were doing things... uh, doing it uh, tough, you know, and um, it was a great way to connect with people. It's it's powerful in so many ways, um, and there's so many stories to illustrate that, but... um, I think you were very clever back in that time, seeing you've taken us there, to actually start with uh, a great Aussie tradition, which is kick to kick. Mm. So you didn't start playing games, you just got some guys out on an oval... And have a bit of kick to kick, is that right? Yeah, the the informality um, of sport I sort of observed was was really powerful, um, and people don't want to share their concerns, or they may not have shared their concerns for a long time. But to get together informally, it it becomes a trust builder through time and structure, and turning up and inviting is very powerful in people's lives who may not have had a lot of invitations over their life connected to uh, opportunity. People came there at a low point in their life. St Kilda in 89, when I was doing the street outreach, they experienced trauma, found more um, trauma. The, uh, constant conversations were um, suicide and, uh, and overdoses. And people said a lot of things that were starting to add up to me that sport and recreation could be very powerful if they could access it. I mean, a man left prison that I met uh, on the street. He really didn't have much. That's not an uncommon story that when people leave hospitals, drug and alcohol, rehabs, it can be a very uh, stressful stressful period. And if they can have something they can enjoy and access, this man said, I've got energy to burn, nowhere to burn it. My head feels like exploding on the inside. Um, and then another man, um, uh, we went out to the uh, Malthouse Theatre. I took a group out in a bus and uh, he was experiencing homelessness and schizophrenia. And maybe foolishly, I looked back, I said to him, um, what are his goals for the future? He said, Peter, I don't even know what to do in the present. Never mind the future. So that was very grounding. So I thought something immediate that people could access. You know, you've got to make things as accessible as possible. And enjoyment in people's lives, I think, is really important, uh, particularly at that point. And Australia, we all love a kick-to-kick. Uh, I've always loved the game and uh, got great life uh, out of the game, whether it was watching, going to, going to the football. I could never think of anything more exciting than going to watch Football at 12 years of age, I would somehow get myself into the rooms and um, they would say, um, you know, let the little bloke through and I'd have a crew cut and people would be running their hand <laughs> over their head. And, uh, you know, I'd get to see Peter Piano on the bench there, you know, making this amazing spiel to his players. In those days, it was... So the game began to capture me from very young. I never had a ball out of my hands. I started, you know, all the time I had the football with me. Uh, during school, after school, kicking the ball over the uh, the wires, um, kicking with anyone who, who who was around. It was just 
so deeply embedded in our being, really. Mm. So, yes. It, yeah, anyway. We, these so people, for these blokes on the street to say, look, come, come and have a kick with me in the park, something they, to do during the day, so how they use up some of that energy. Well, people responded really well to, to that. Um, and that was, I, I was blown away even by the numbers that started and kept coming, how we were able to form a team of an unlikely looking footy team, if I can put it that way. I remember the priest Ernie Smith saying, we're going to have to cut out this football after the first match or two, because <laughs> everyone was hobbling along, I've seen all these people hobbling along Grey Street. <laughs> And he said, we might have to cut out this footy, Peter. Everyone's hobbling along Grey Street coming to the meal with Sacred Heart Mission. Just have three or four hundred people. But he he grew to love it and appreciate it to the point where he said, Peter, you should be doing this full time. This is really working. They're they're absolutely loving this. And they made their own gold flags. And we borrowed and lent um, resources. I remember the presbytery being absolutely packed to take a group to Osnham House. Uh, to play our early games, but um, I wanted to ask you uh, about that first game that you, your team played against the Osnham House guys uh, in the park opposite Osnham House, and it made me laugh the story about uh, everyone's ready to go and you wanted to do the traditional thing and have a coin toss. Yeah, well, so what happened there? Well, I discovered there wasn't a, a cracker between the lot of us, so he could have turned us all upside down including myself. I never used to carry around a, a lot of money, and I think people all thought that that, that might have been wise at that stage. But, um, uh, yeah. No, well, let no. me tell you a story from my experience. Emma hasn't got a word in yet, but you'll, I'll get you to do a reading in a sec. Yeah. Um, so, as I told you before, I coached a team uh, out at Lilydale for a season in Ricklink, and it was a great experience. But uh, it was a long way for me to travel from Airport West over to Lilydale. And one day I was running a bit late for the game. It was a game day. It was a home game for us. And I got there in time, but only just. So I jumped out of the van and ran inside and organised the guys. And out they went. And that's all we played and lost, as usual. And uh, at the end of the game, the guys are all sitting around. There are a few girls, but it was mostly guys, uh, eating their pie and drinking their can of Coke. And... Uh, I said, well, I'd better go now. So I went back to the van. Of course, in my haste, I'd locked my keys in the, in the car. Right? So I went back and I said, listen, is there anybody who can break into a van? So I think 36 hands shot up in the air. <laughs> so I had the right yeah. crowd. So let's have a taste of the book, Em. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, something that I really enjoyed about the book was, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, but um, how... It isn't a necessarily just a historical, factual account of how it came to be, which part of it is, and that's important, but it really shares a lot of um, very powerful stories um, of participants and people involved with Recklink, which has been fantastic to read and I think a really wonderful part of the book. Um, so I just wanted to share this little um, excerpt from it um, to do with Michael Walsh's uh, story with Callista Cooper. So this excerpt starts, they called depression the black dog. And let me tell you what the black dog truly feels like. It's like being in a room in complete darkness, putting your hands on the wall, looking for the door, but there is no door. There's no escape. That's very much how I described my illness in those early times. Through an invite to join a game of Recklink footy, which took me five weeks before I could even get out of the car at the Oval, 
I slowly found reconnection points to bring myself back from the brink and went on to find small joys, volunteering with their footy league and eventually stepping into a rewarding full-time job with RecLink. This is my story. Yeah, it's a very powerful story and he has an insight that's probably worth sharing. Um, he realised intuitively that if he, he didn't get out of the house, he'd had, quite, he'd had a massive personal um, breakdown. He had brothers who were trying to support him. He had family who were very supportive. Um, he used to, you know, he, he wasn't really leaving the house there for a period and uh, our coach, um, one of our coaches, the Sunbury Phoenix, uh, Brian Millett, would phone him up and phone him up multiple times and uh, he wasn't able to sort of respond to that at this point. Uh, but as he said, he turned up at the ground five times before he got out of the car. When he walked across the ground, he realised at the end of the day, he he picked up that there was a lot of people who had a whole lot of life challenges but who probably had very little or no support. And, and that football team was, he could see how critical it was. And he felt he was doing valuable work. Uh, he could see that that structure could mean everything as, almost as a family for some or a second family. And, um, yeah, he, he goes step by step. Um, and he's, he's, it's a wonderful story that's been put together. Uh, about him, but one of the things, a quote that he loved and is in the story, you alone can't do it, hmm. but you alone must take the first steps. And that quote really impacted on him and it allowed him to get out of the house um, and to sort of rebuild his life. He became one of our, uh, became a really great worker for us. Yeah, I noticed um, I was actually going to... Uh bring up that quote as well because it that for him he said that he realized he needed to take to help himself which is great but then also being able to do that in a community that supported him is also incredibly crucial which was really lovely to see how that then played out from there you know take the first step out of the car even um yeah that was really wonderful to read and all throughout the book as well a lot of quotes like footy being better than medicine um, and someone else saying a vaccine that you can see. And that's mm-hmm. a common thread throughout. Like how do you think, how, why is footy so powerful in that way, do you think? Uh, I, I have my own thoughts on this. I think where um, 30 years ago when we were starting this, what I observed on the streets of St Kilda is that people were in deep isolation. They were not accessing anything really, family, sporting clubs, work, and they were really vulnerable. I think it's a great um, protector of the vulnerable to get a, a structure that brings you out of that and that you really, um, that you really uh, enjoy. Um, but one of the, the girls in the, in the book, um, she wasn't allowed to play footy at school. Um, she'd had tr- a lot of trauma in her life. Um, she, uh, and as a result of that, started doing a lot of, um, self-harming. She, the principal, um, she was asked to go to the office because she started playing footy with the boys. So in that young life, she never got to play. 
she said all her life she waited to be able to do what Recklink was providing for her with uh, footy, cricket and doing a whole range of things. She became a great character. She won our league medal. Um, but towards the end of the story, um, they asked her what she got out of football. She said, um, I just forget how she words it, but she finishes it. Um, uh, I'm not sure what would have happened, but I do know this. It wouldn't have been good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on other occasions she's said that it saved her life. It's not uncommon in nearly all or most stories to pick up some threads of that. It's either extremely life-giving or it saved their, their life. And that was an excerpt of the sporting record from the 21st of March this year, where M and John spoke with Peter Cullen from RecLink about his book, The Power of a Football, which gathered over 30 personal stories from all walks of life in the 30 years of RecLink footy. And again, you can listen to that full episode by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash the sporting record, where all their episodes are podcasted. And you can catch the sporting record every Thursday from 4 p.m. Now, Inez, I think we have a song coming up. Yes, we do. We're going to play um, a recent last year new track. <laughs> Those are words uh, by Nairi called Future. How do I sense what's on the mind? Before they put me down in holy water, bathe me in the light. They're going to crucify Oh, wow. 
percent of women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. We are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.30 in the morning and you just heard Fuchsia by Nairi as Inez introduced uh, a recent song from last year. Uh, it's April. Oh my gosh, it's April. Um, but we are now joined by Felix McIntyre, who's a non-binary transmasculine doctor living on unceded Wurundjeri country. And they've joined us to speak about their recent article for Overland, which argues that gender-affirming surgery should be covered by Medicare. And we're going to discuss the importance of accessible public health care for gender affirmation and the importance of centering trans bodily autonomy. Felix, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us. Um, I really appreciated the article as a non-binary trans person myself. Um, and yeah, uh, this was such an excellent piece for Overland that argued that gender affirming surgery should be covered by Medicare. So to set the scene, could you tell us a bit about the current state of access to gender affirming surgeries uh, for trans people in so-called Australia? And for listeners who aren't familiar, maybe speak a bit about what the kind of hoops are that we're asked to jump through and costs we need to consider in order to access gender-affirming surgeries? Absolutely. So um, when we talk about gender-affirming surgeries, we're talking about a range of surgeries that are offered to help um, align a person's body with their gender identity. And currently, um, these are almost exclusively done in the private health system. Um, And they're extremely expensive. So um, prices range a lot. Um, can be talking about kind of fifteen thousand dollars to up to eighty thousand dollars per surgery, and for people who want surgery at multiple sites, um, you can easily be looking at over a hundred thousand dollars for that. Um, if the surgery doesn't totally go to plan, you can have to go back to theatre for revisions, and that can mm-hmm. cost more, um, kind of thousands more dollars. Um, there's not many surgeons. Um, that can perform these kinds of surgeries. So a lot of people have to travel, um, sometimes interstate, um, to have the surgeries, which can also add to the cost. Yeah. A lot of them, yeah. Um, and there's other costs involved as well. Um, a lot of them have long recovery time, kind of can involve up to six to eight weeks off work. Um, and you may have to see a psychologist or psychiatrist to get some documentation of gender dysphoria, which can easily add another thousand dollars or so. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's um, you know this this sort of uh, stranglehold, I guess, that um, the medical industry has over trans bodily autonomy is something that I'm hoping we can unpack a bit further um, later in, in our chat. Mm. But yeah, like you, I've also been immersed in what seems like this endless circuit of fundraisers for the many trans folks who need support to access vital, life-saving, uh, gender-affirming procedures. And as you mentioned in the article, this creates an added and potentially undesirable level of visibility and vulnerability to trans people and might even mean uh, the further further marginalization of people in our community who are 
already sidelined or who sort of face the most risk, and I'm thinking in particular of trans women of color. Um, so who gets to fundraise and what kind of work and risks are associated with this um, this process? Yeah, well, as you say, I think fundraising um, is just so common that you it starts to feel normalized. Like You just get used to seeing all the GoFundMe pages week after week. Um, but if you think about it a bit more, it's a pretty grim situation. But these are life-saving surgeries um, for a lot of people, and they're having to ask their communities for tens and thousands of dollars um, to access them. Um, and that involves a lot of admin and a lot of work and also sharing kind of quite intimate things with the public. So, uh, yeah, not everyone really gets to fundraise. Uh, it requires a certain kind of special capital. So... To fundraise at all, it requires that you have people around you that have tens of thousands of dollars that they're able um, to give you. Um, and it requires that it's safe for you to be publicly out um, and talking about something as intimate as gender affirmation surgery. Mm. So in practice, this means that trans people who already suffer from disadvantage or discrimination um, are less able to, to fundraise um, and often not able to. Um, so in practice, it means that it's often people who, you know, white, middle class, uh, already well supported that kind of can raise funds this way. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, something else that I think about, you know, in terms of um, the well-documented economic marginalization of, of a lot of trans people is that, you know, people might be circulating fundraisers and it's, and it's folks who are also in similar positions who, who are chipping in, uh, which I think is, is such, um, you know, is such a good case as well for having this publicly funded um, rather than having a community whose resources, resources are already stretched or limited, um, you know, being circulated in, in this way to, to access life-saving care. Um, so a vital point in this article as well was your statement that poor mental health is sometimes framed as an intrinsic part of being trans, but it isn't. We are not the issue. Um, I found this really powerful to read, and I was hoping you could unpack it in relation to the need for publicly funded gender-affirming care in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we all know that the mental health statistics um, for trans people are terrible, so about half of, almost half of trans people in Australia have attempted suicide at least once, um, which I think should be treated as a national emergency, really. Um, but I think we need to look further about what the, why is this and what can we do to change it? And there are some pretty clear reasons um, why trans people might have poor mental health. Um, I think the first one is the transphobia they were experiencing um, kind of rife in the public discourse. I mean, in the last few weeks, we've seen um, anti-trans activist Polly Parker touring Australia. Um, we've been kind of ridiculed and mocked. And it's really been laid bare, um, kind of the kind of transphobia underlying politics. Um, and, um, you know, because of that, a lot of us experience rejection from families, friends and communities, uh, discrimination in employment and housing, um, and sometimes, like, people can't kind of aren't safe to kind of walk down the street without mm. experiencing abuse. So it's no wonder that takes a toll on people's mental health. But another reason is that trans people may experience gender dysphoria but are unable to access the health care that they need to mm -hmm. change that. Um, for many people that need it, kind of accessing um, gender-affirming care 
can dramatically improve um, or even eliminate gender dysphoria. Study after study shows that gender-affirming surgery significantly increased well-being and quality of life um, in trans people that want them. Um, but regardless of this, um, then these kind of aren't being made accessible um, or affordable. Yeah, and I mean, of course, it is, you know, it, it, it's just become so much more stark as we've seen, you know, the rise of more concerted uh, anti-trans attacks, um, you know, trans people being used as a political football, and in particular trans kids being used as a political football. Mm. Um, it, it just creates an even more harsh and toxic environment that, you know, undoubtedly has detrimental impacts on the mental health of trans folks, and yet, uh, that's not something that's centered in us, but is, um, you know, requiring a societal change. Um, and I guess more broadly, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, cisgender people engage in gender affirming practices and procedures all the time. Um, and yet there is such, um, you know, furor raised about trans folks accessing similar treatments um, and, you know, gender affirmation from um you know, whether that is wearing the clothes that you feel comfortable in um, to getting a breast augmentation. So could you speak to the importance of trans people's autonomy over our own bodies and how this is undermined in mainstream discussions about gender affirmation and maybe how your thoughts on this are inflected uh, by being a trans person working in the medical field? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in a sense, there are already gender-affirming surgeries available that are publicly funded uh, for cisgender people. Um, in the current system. So, for example, if you're a cisgender woman and you have a certain kind of genetic mutations that increase your risk of breast cancer, um, you can get a double mastectomy and a breast reconstruction publicly funded. Um, and the purpose of the mastectomy is to reduce the risk of breast cancer. But the breast reconstruction is a cosmetic surgery that has nothing to do with cancer. Um, and the reason it's publicly funded is because it's understood that for many patients, the loss of their breast can be a psychologically devastating event mm. with the capacity to negatively impact mental health, body image, sexuality, relationships. Um, and for the patients who choose the cosmetic um, uh, reconstruction that can alleviate all those issues, um, I think it's great that um, we can offer these options for patients. Um, but that's never caused a big media uproar because no one questions why a cisgendered woman might want to breast reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um I think, you know, there's so much talk about um, gender-affirming care focused on whether people might regret it. Um, and there's a real obsession with the small amount of people who do transition, um, who I think are also used as a political football. I think this all reflects that a lot of cisgender people just don't understand the experience of being trans and don't understand what gender dysphoria um, kind of is. Um, and... I think the surgery sometimes can produce an emotive response in them similar to the gender dysphoria trans people might experience without their surgeries. Mm. Um, I mean, the regret like rights for the surgery is actually extremely low. Um, but I think we need to reframe that conversation because in medicine, the reality is we let patients make decisions that they might regret all the time. Mm-hmm. If we respect their autonomy to make decisions about their own body, um, it's considered important that patients have decision-making capacity to weigh up risks and benefits of an intervention and that they're able to provide informed consent. But really, kind of patients are able to access all sorts of surgeries here. No one's kicking up a fuss about what someone might regret their kind of nose job or knee replacement. You know what I mean? Yeah, 
No, I think that is a that's a fantastic point um, because really, like the way that the argument is being framed means that um, a lot of the time, you know, trans people get pushed into a corner of being like, no, but like most people don't regret getting their surgeries. But it's really about looking at that broader lens of being like, you know, who gets to who gets to make choices about their own bodies, um, mm. you know, free from um, you know this huge amount of uh, scrutiny and um, I guess, aggressive demonization in, in the media. Um, and also, I think um, something that I've been thinking about a lot as well is a lot of um, a lot of mainstream narratives around transness, whether they're um, anti-trans people or sometimes even supporting trans folks, uh, do uh, frame transness and uh, people's relationships with their bodies as a sort of linear journey rather than recognizing mm. that you know, cis people and trans people have flexible relationships with their gender presentation and, and what might be affirming to them over time. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think is is uh, put in quite black and white terms um, when there's a lot more nuance, I think, that can come into the discussion. Um, but I thought we could wrap up by talking about if you if you want to share them any reflections from Transgender Day of Visibility slash Vengeance on March 31st. And we saw an incredible turnout at rallies around the country. But there's also a need to turn this positive sentiment into tangible outcomes to actually improve the lives of trans folks in so-called Australia. So how are you feeling um, about, um, I guess, about the rallies and also about the potential for trans led change post TDOV? Yes, yeah, so I think anyone who was at the rally would agree it was an incredible event. Um, it was cold, it was raining, and yet um, something like 3,000 people, um, trans people and their allies, showed up anyway. Um, I think standing at Parliament House and chanting together felt quite emotional after what um, the community's been through in the last few weeks, and it felt significant. Um, I mean, looking at kind of national and global political issues. I think there's some things that worry me. I don't think it's necessarily going to be smooth sailing for trans people. Mm. Um, in the UK and the US, there's a lot of uh, anti-trans politics that's becoming more organised, a lot of anti-trans laws is being introduced. Um, and I'm worried about um, the potential of that sort of becoming uh, more uh, of an issue here. Uh, I think the turnout at the rallies across the country showed that there's a lot of people who care about this issue and there's a lot of potential, potential for organising. Um, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I do think we need to be more organised. Um, and I think other cisgender queer people need to realise that our interests are absolutely tied together. Our homophobia and transphobia are linked. And it's disheartening to see that there's a group called LGB Alliance on the side of the anti-trans rally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if conservatives come for gender non-normativity, they're going to come for, you know, um, gays, lesbians and bisexuals next. Yeah. Um, so we need those allies. Um, but there are some really cool trans-led incentives out there already. For example, um, the activist uh, Jackie Turner is setting up a dedicated national transgender rights organisation um, called the Trans uh, Justice Fund, which people should check out. There's also things like the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund, which aims to provide support for trans people in prison and post-release. Mm. Um, and as for gender-affirming surgeries, I'd say to watch this space. Um, so... My last point is I think we should learn from some of the mistakes of the marriage equality campaign. Mm -hmm. I think that campaign made the mistake of promoting this kind of middle-class, white, nuclear family, white picket fence view of being queer to make it more palatable to straight people. And I think that ended up leaving a lot of people behind. Um, And we're strongest if we centre the needs of the most marginalised members of our community. 
And if we don't stop, we're being proud of our queerness and the endless possibilities for the ocean dance. Yeah. I mean, I think... Oh, I think it's going to be um, a long, a long battle still. But uh, the amount of support we saw on the streets um, has been has been heartening, and definitely, you know, a light in the darkness of the past few weeks. And um, I guess it, it just comes down to what, is, as Georgie Stone said the other day, you know, it's 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 all well and good that people show up for that, but they need to show up, you know, when things aren't so public and so glamorous as well. Um, but yeah, look, Felix, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Felix McIntyre, a non-binary transmasculine doctor living on unceded Wurundjeri country, who joined us to speak about their recent article for Overland, which argues that gender-affirming surgery should be covered by Medicare. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. <laughs> They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hello, hello. Amazing interview. Definitely share it around. Um, hugely important as well. And now we are going to take a little break and get your dancing boots on. My favorite thing that I always say, everybody has dancing boots. I have like three pairs, isn't everybody else? Um, but yeah, have a little dance to Please You by Becca Hatch and Planet Vegeta. Go where you want, I'm a 
That was Please You with Becca Hatch and Planet Vegeta. I was worried that I was saying it like the, you know, this veggie, veggie stock. I think I was confusing it. Like Vegeta. Isn't it Vegeta? I'm not sure. Okay. I feel like it's disrespectful to the artist, but I'm really sorry. Yeah, but um, what about Dragon Ball? Maybe it's Planet <laughs> Vegeta. Well, maybe it is Planet Vegeta, but that is Please You with Becca Hatch and Planet Vegeta. And now we're going to go to another song. Just in a sec. Maybe now. Oh yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll go to sorry, that next Sorry, sorry. That no, was no, that was on me. It is "Show Me the Money" by TK Mazda, which is the Snake Hips remix. Just show me the money, say less. Show me the money, just show me the money, say
was Show Me the Money, um, and that was Snake Hips featuring TK Maidza. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Inez, take it away. We are now going to be joined by Aurelia St. Clair, who is NAM's favorite comedian, writer, podcaster, content creator, to chat about their Melbourne Comedy Festival show, Non-Dairy Presenting, which is on now at Trades Hall until 23rd of April. Her hour of razor-sharp observational humor, homemade songs, inner north ramblings, and feel-good comedy for lactose intolerant people, as well as those who pretend to be, is one that you just cannot miss. Hey, Aurelia, thanks so much for coming on here today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, um, I have a big smile on my face because I am so excited that you're here. Um, but could you maybe start a little off with how you actually got into comedy? Yeah, I got into comedy by entering in a competition called Raw Comedy. Um, this is a competition anyone can enter to open mic sort of comedy comp that's every year. And I really loved it and just, um, had so much fun doing stand-up that I just stuck with it. Yeah, nice. I mean, that's a pretty um, wonderful way to get into comedy. And I also know that with your Melbourne Comedy Festival show, um, on your Instagram sometimes you'll talk about, you know, how sometimes difficult it can be to put on a show, which is kind of all by yourself. Is there something that you wish, like, people knew about the Melbourne Comedy Fest or uh, also just, like, how how challenging it can be sometimes to put on your own show. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people assume that comedians are maybe invited to do the comedy festival or that it's something that everyone gets paid for. But the Melbourne Comedy Festival is actually one of the biggest festivals of its kind with, I believe, over 500 shows on. And a lot of those shows are self-produced, meaning that the people, the comedians or groups of comedians sometimes, depending on the show, all put their time and money into self-producing, which includes paying for the hire of the venue that you're in for the time every night, the marketing, the printing of flyers, posters, even just the inside ticketing fees. It all adds up to um, yeah, a lot of time and money invested, and I think people can sometimes forget that that happens for smaller acts and that for bigger acts, you know, um, they don't really have to worry about those things so much because mm-hmm. they have management taking care of it and they're also more likely to sell out anyway. So if you are somebody who's maybe thinking of going to the comedy festival this year, I would highly suggest checking out somebody who you've maybe never haven't, never have heard before or just a random act who's show title you like rather than the sort of big ticket names that you see um, doing the the gala and big geeks like that every year. Yeah, 100%. I feel like it, it sounds like, you know, a big commitment and, you know, maybe there's a huge reward, but, you know, there's also like, yeah, having to take time off work. And, um, yeah, do you feel like, you know, since you've been um, doing comedy more and more, do you feel like you get, like, recognized more or do you think that more... Th- yeah, just things have changed in your life since you've gotten to fame. <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely feel like I'm getting recognized around, like, Smith Street <laughs> <laughs> yep. or, or Brunswick Street, you know, like, in the sort of niche that I target with my content. But, I'm like, outside of that, I'm pretty unrecognized, and it's it's good because I want to be able to look um, <laughs> tired and, hungover on Smith Street and not be recognized. 
Yep, a hundred percent. I feel that way every day when I'm <laughs> going to radio on Sweet Street too. Um, I also have, you know, been to your Melbourne Comedy Festival show twice, and genuinely, my cheeks hurt so much from laughing. Um, and I especially love the title, you know, non dairy presenting, <laughs> which I feel like is a title I can finally aspire to. Uh, could you <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more about your show and what actually makes someone dairy versus non-dairy presenting? <laughs> um, I think being dairy versus non-dairy presenting doesn't even come down to whether you drink milk or not, although I would say that most of my target audience is probably like a plant milk drinker um, when it comes to their coffee order. And in this show, I kind of poke fun at a lot, a few of the sort of stereotypes that come with being um, non-dairy presenting, you know, being um, queer and poly <laughs> and that sort of thing, which I think is just uh, linked back to my own experiences and just what my friends tend to do. And, um, yeah, I think what makes you a non-dairy presenting is your choices in life, and they tend to be a little bit, like, different. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the slideshows are the favorite part um, of your show, and especially all the Venn diagrams of, like, what's neutral versus what is dairy versus non-dairy presenting. <laughs> is there, like, a Venn diagram in your show that you really are like, yeah, this is this accurately displays what I'm trying to say? Um, I think I have one that I made as sort of my ideal target audience, and um, I think that's probably my favorite one. Yeah, nice. Amazing. Um, and also, I know that in addition to being an amazing comic, you're also like a podcaster and a writer and a model, and I especially like your newsletter. Um, and I was wondering maybe if you could chat through how you kind of come up with ideas for the newsletter and what writing them feels like and like how different it feels to comedy and do you have like any favorite pieces? Yeah, with the newsletter, I really wanted a place to just talk about whatever I wanted to talk about without the sort of pressure of Instagram where things have to be really aesthetic or even a podcast where I feel like because you're the one talking, so it's your voice rather than people reading it in their own voice. Um, and I started it in the start of the pandemic. And with the ideas for the newsletter, I'm thinking about what to write for my April edition right now because I try to write at least once a month. And often I either have something in my notes app that has happened in during the month that I want to kind of explore further, or sometimes... I just do like a list of things that have been on my mind. Um, and I try to like think about what I would like to read in my inbox and then try to write from that perspective. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think your recent one about like supermarkets and also the newsletter on, um, yeah, the scam that, you know, happened to you, which is unbelievably awful. Um, I think it, you know, it helps shed light and I think you're a very like insightful and nuanced writer and, you know, it definitely does help that you're very funny too. <laughs> um, but it's nice to have that in your inbox as well. And I think, you know, going back to also podcasting, um, you also do a podcast on your own called Non-Dairy Presenting. What's it like doing a podcast on your own? Because I think in the studio here we have, you know, two extra people. I can 
chat to them, but doing it on your own, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I would feel scared that I would have run out of things to talk about. Yeah, I feel like a lot of planning goes into doing it by yourself compared to with others. So um, I've been on other podcasts, you know, with other people where you can bounce off each other. And initially when I started recording, I was really missing that because it was just me and my thoughts. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just rambling or losing, <laughs> losing kind of my thoughts on what I actually wanted to say. So what I do is I have little segments in the podcast that I write down on um, essentially just a piece of paper, rough thoughts that I want to talk about, and then I have to self-police myself so I don't um, stray too far from the subject that I've chosen for myself for that episode. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really nice to... um you know, plan, but also, yeah, sometimes it's nice to hear someone's stream of consciousness <laughs> and just hear them <laughs> ramble. Um, also, is there, like, uh, this is just maybe personally a personal bias question, but is there, like, a favorite, um, like, tarot card that you usually have? Because I know you pull one out, and I think you inspired me to pull a tarot card out and figure out what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite tarot card is the Fool. Um it's just a silly card. It's the first card of tarot, and um, it sparks so much joy. And also, the fool card has like a little dog by the fool's feet, and I always imagine that's my dog and that's me. <laughs> nice, yeah, absolutely. Um, has it been? Do you think that like? Um, so I feel like we're straight <laughs> a little bit from the comedy stuff, but um, I think going back to yeah your comedy show. Um, you also speak about, you know, growing up, um, and living in different places like Germany and the UK, if my memory doesn't fail me. Um, and wondering if you could, you know, give some advice on how you can feel at home in a new place and especially, you know, at a, like places where you don't feel at home. Cause I think, you know, from the outside, um, you're like, have, you seem to have like a really lovely life and community around you. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to know if you could shed some light on that. Yeah, I feel like when I first moved to the UK, for example, I lived in London for a bit, I didn't really have a lot of friends. So what I would do is I just walk and walk everywhere and just explore and go into the stores that I couldn't afford and go to markets and all of that. And when I moved to Melbourne as well, I um, actually moved a lot in my first sort of two or three years here. I think I moved like every six months because every share house I was in was just the worst share house ever and made it my mission to explore the areas that I was in in like great detail and that definitely helped me get an idea of where I was in in the space and kind of the vibe of each area that I lived in and then from there um, building my community has definitely been around work. I've worked in so many sort of retail, um, customer service jobs, and I think that's where you find the best friends because you're all suffering together. <laughs> and um, Also, I guess being online a lot and being the, um, a chronic sharer slash oversharer of my life um, has definitely helped me make some friends even via Instagram that, um, you know, I wouldn't have met otherwise. 100%. I definitely agree with that, especially working in um, 
yeah, it's like hospo or retail, you kind of bond over um, <laughs> like the customers that you might have or the bosses that you might have. But it's like, um, yeah, they're all just comrades, you know, they're all just comrades mm. <laughs> together. Um, and yeah, definitely being online uh, really does help connect you with people that maybe you wouldn't have met otherwise. So I think that's really, really beautiful and definitely helpful. Um, and lastly, I know that you speak about, you know, so many nuanced and hilarious topics um, in the show. Could you tell our listeners, like, how we can show up and support you um, and anything else about the show and where else you'd like to be found? Yes, please come to the Melbourne Comedy Festival show if you can. It's called Nandere Presenting and tickets are at comedyfestival.com.au. So just head to that website and search for Nandere Presenting. And otherwise, you can find me on Instagram at Aurelia.com, at .com spelled out. And I, you know, post and promote everything I do on there as well as just a general stream of consciousness and memes. And, yeah, it's definitely the best place to find everything I do. 100%. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us here today, Aurelia. We'll link everything in the show notes. And everybody, better come support Aurelia. Um, yeah, and hope you have a really good day. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No worries at all. Thank you. Then we uh, were joined by Aurelia St. Clair, which is NAB's favourite comedian, writer, podcaster and content creator, to chat about their Melbourne Comedy Festival show, Non-Dairy Presenting, on now at Trades Hall until the 23rd of April. Her hour of razor-sharp observational humour, homemade songs, inner north ramblings, and feel-good comedy for lactose-intolerant people, as well as those who just pretend to be, is not one to miss. And we will link um, all the socials and the show notes, show details in the show notes. Um, yeah, thank you. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Panoply. Panorama. Panpipe. Pansy. Aha! Pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. 
What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2:30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. Next up, we are joined by Jess Abrams, who is a former Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service ranger who has worked for more than two decades to protect nature and is currently a national nature campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation. Today, Jess updates us on the growing number of threatened species, why the additions in recent months are so concerning and what can be done to protect our wildlife before it's too late. Good morning, Jess. Thank you for joining us. I hear that you are an expert at doing interviews with um, kids in tow, so I appreciate your time. No problem. I've got my two-year-old on board today, Um, so if there's any... uh yelling, it's just his excitement about seeing it bigger as we're walking around uh, the streets, but um, let's chat about threatened species. Yeah, life goes on and you keep campaigning, so that's the reality of it. Um, Would you be able to start by providing some background on our topics today? So what is the threatened species list and at what stage is a species added to this list? Yeah, well, the federal government, the Australian government, keeps a list of all the plants and animals and ecosystems actually in Australia that are vulnerable or threatened by extinction. And it's a list that sadly keeps growing. There's almost 2,000 plants, animals and ecosystems on that list. And um, just last weekend, the list grew by another 28. And it's a a trend that um, has been continued since the list um, began um, when the environmental legislation that it's part of um, is our national environment law came into force just in the early 2000s. Thanks for that background. So, yeah, unfortunately, this list is steadily growing and really has been since the onset of colonisation here in Australia. So what do you understand to be the main threats today to wildlife? Look, the primary threat, the, the thing that wildlife simply can't survive without is a home, is habitat. And Australia, sadly, um, has a terrible record of habitat destruction. Um, There's certainly other threats that are playing a huge role in this too. Invasive species have taken a huge toll, of course, since colonisation, the introduction of foxes and 
cats and, and other um, invasive species, but it's the bulldozing, the destruction of habitat that's really had a huge impact. Increasingly, um, fires, particularly fueled by extreme climate change and, and also extreme droughts, um, are having their toll and are compounding the pressures. So it's habitat destruction, it's invasive species, it's fire, it's a range of things. But increasingly, it's those things working together, having an increased impact. Yeah, and it is having a devastating impact. Um, I guess now I'm going to move on to our general legislative attitudes towards uh, environmental protection. So what do you think this number of new additions says about our current legislative attitudes towards protections? Yeah, well, look, I think the fact that the list keeps growing is proof that the laws that are meant to protect these animals and plants simply aren't working. Um, and the problem with the Australian legislation is that um, once a species is added to the list, it has some increased protection, but not a lot of increased protection. And it's quite different in other countries in the United States when an endangered species is added to the um, federal um, certain species list there, the government has to identify the habitat that it will need to survive and it has to protect that habitat. Um, and that doesn't happen in Australia. That's it's known as critical habitat. It's the habitat that that species needs that's uh, critical for its survival. And that's one of the changes that we're pushing for because these environment laws are being rewritten at the moment, in large part because we've been campaigning for a decade to have them rewritten. But um, it's the protection of the habitat that's going to be one of the most important um, aspects of the, the improvement or strengthening of our laws. Yeah, so that leads on to my next question. Um, First Nations people have managed land and protected biodiversity here for millennia. What more could our government be doing to support First Nations-led land management and what changes need to take place, for example, in our environmental law in order to strengthen the protections? Look, of course First Nations people are doing an amazing job and have for a long time and the Australian government does support them with funding for ranger groups um, and that work continues all across um, Australia. Indigenous rangers are caring for country and they need the support of government um, funding to be able to do that and, and that, that continues and obviously needs to increase. But we also need funding, a, a dramatic increase in funding to restore the habitats that have been destroyed. Um, it's been estimated $1.69 billion a year, which might sound like a lot of money, uh, but in comparison to the $12 billion we spend each year, or the government spends each year on fossil fuel subsidies, mm. it's actually a small amount, would be that $1.69 million would be enough to recover almost all of the threatened species that are currently on the list. So wow. we need a, a huge increase in funding for nature. And at the moment, the government is pursuing a market-based model. Uh, we remain cautious and sceptical of a market solution to a market problem, but... Um, we certainly need more government money. We do need money from business as well. But the other change we need in these laws is greater protection, as I said, for the habitat of wildlife. And we need standards. We need, like, strong outcomes. So the funny thing about our environment laws at the moment is it doesn't say that extinction is illegal. It doesn't say that sending wildlife closer to the brink is is, is against the law. It just says that the environment minister has to approve anyone who wants to do that. 
So in our laws, we're looking for outcomes and standards that would actually create outcomes that would protect nature, not just processes, not just tick and flick or rubber stamp processes, which is what our current laws have. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that um, kind of detail misses the general public in many ways. I didn't know some of those details about the laws personally, so it's quite enlightening. And I think we've probably all noticed um, different species in more built-up areas that aren't usually there. So we do really need to protect their uh, critical habitat, as you described it. Um, next up, on a bit more of a, I guess, personal level, if you can say that about animals, um, I'd like to know a bit more about our animal neighbours. I think it's good to kind of build that connection. So there's a context for what we're talking about, um, a relational context could you name some of your favourite species and tell us a little bit about who they are? Sure. And, you know, you talked about wildlife in urban areas. We often think of threatened or endangered species in, you know, remote, distant parts of the country. But actually, urban areas, are cities and towns, actually in, uh, are home to um, a very large number of our threatened species. Nearly half of all threatened species in Australia can be found in our cities and towns. And one of my favourites which uh, you um, listeners in Melbourne would see each night flying over their homes is the grey-headed flying fox, which um, lives um, along the Yarra. It's, it's um, a vulnerable species that's vulnerable to extinction. It's had large areas of the forest that depends on for food and nesting have been um, cleared in Australia. And um, it's an amazing species because it flies great distances in search of food and plays a key role in nature because it does the pollination, it, it, without it, we wouldn't have many um, of the trees um, that we have in our forest because the flying fox flies from tree to tree, taking pollen from one tree to another, ensuring that our forests are healthy. And it's, when we lose keystone species like flying foxes, that's when the ecosystem, that's when nature or the web of life starts to break down. And ultimately, it's not just about losing one or two creatures, it's actually the life support system that... Mm-hmm that we, we all need for our survival. So um, grey-headed flying foxes is one of my favourites. Another um, species that um, I see around me is the um, red-rumped parrot. It's a, it's a green, sort of dull-coloured parrot, but um, it loves the grasslands around Mary Creek and the Yarra River and um, the Maribyrnong River, and you might see it um, eating seeds off the ground. Um, and it's a gorgeous little bird. Um, look for the red rump on its, uh, its tail. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, bats, um, <laughs> I mean, flying foxes, technically. Uh, I watch them every night. I grew up around them up north and very cute, integral to our ecosystems. So <laughs> it's not just one thing. Yeah, it's how these animals fit into our ecosystems as a whole. And I think that's really important to remember. Um, Finally, my last question today is how can our listeners at home take action to support protection of Australia's precious biodiversity or what can you do in your own backyards to kind of support these species that might be facing um, their habitats being destroyed? Look, we all have a role that we can play in our own backyard. Planting a wildlife-friendly garden. Sorry, my little son's upset. Planting native plants in our gardens, even if it's just flowers on your balcony. Mm-hmm. Getting together yeah. with your community to restore bushland. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's and, okay. and, of course, being an advocate, joining with um, 
you know, community members, could be an ACS community group in your area or another environmental group. And I think, you know, most importantly, as long as, as well as doing the bit in your own backyard, it's being a strong advocate um, and telling your politicians that you want them to act on your behalf to protect nature. And um, right now, as I said, the federal government is reviewing our national environment laws and our politicians on all sides need to hear from their community that they want these laws to, to protect nature. Um, I'm going to take off now, Layla, but um, great Thank to you talk. So much. And uh, I've got to look after the future generations that are um, <laughs> needing me right now. Of course. Thank you for your time, you. Jess. No problem. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. So we just heard from Jess Abrams, who did an amazing job there. It sounds like there were two battles going on. (laughs) Um, uh, It's obviously a family of um, fighters, (laughs) you know, getting through the day. And so Jess is a former Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service Ranger who has worked for more than two decades to protect nature and currently works for the Australian Conservation Foundation and today Jess gave us some updates on the threatened species list, why these additions are so gravely concerning and what can be done right now to protect our wildlife. You're listening to 3CR. I think we might, maybe we'll just jump into our rundown for the show. Uh, We have time, amazingly, we have done an excellent job of timing. Um, So we'll, we'll have a little flick through what we talked about today. So First up, we were joined, or we weren't joined, uh, sorry. We uh, played a little bit back from a uh, show from last month with M and John from The Sporting Record, who spoke with Peter Cullen from RecLink about his book, The Power of a Football, which gathered over 30 personal stories from all walks of life in the 30 years of RecLink footy. And you can catch The Sporting Record every Thursday from 4 p.m. on 3CR. And after that, we were joined by Felix McIntyre, a non-binary trans-masculine doctor living on unceded Wurundjeri country, who spoke with us about their recent article for Overland, which argues that gender-affirming surgery should be covered by Medicare. And we got the opportunity to talk about the importance of accessible public health care for gender affirmation and the importance of centering trans bodily autonomy. Then we were joined by Aurelia St. Clair, which is Nam's favourite comedian, writer, podcaster and content creator, to chat about their Melbourne Comedy Festival show, Non-Dairy Presenting, which is on now at Trades Hall until 23rd of April, uh, which focused on razor-sharp, observational humour, homemade songs, inner north ramblings and feel-good comedy for lactose intolerant people, as well as those who just pretend to be. And finally, we were joined by Jess Abrams, who is a former Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service ranger. He has worked for more than two decades to protect nature and currently works as the National Nature Campaigner for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Today, Jess updated us on the growing number of threatened species and why these additions in recent months are so concerning, and as well as what can be done right now uh, through legislation and individual action to protect our wildlife. Yeah, um, that's uh, all for us. Oh, well, yeah, that's all for us. No, you (laughs) know what? That's all for us this week. I don't know why that came out wrong twice or sounded like it. Um, If you're working over (laughs) the long weekend, be safe. Hope people are nice to you, and especially if you're in customer service. But um, we will catch you next week. See ya. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.